Grimdark is a genre that pushes back against many of the things classic heroic fantasy embraces. Sometimes you just need a little more grit and gore. Sometimes you just have to be realistic. Welcome to the Fantasy Inn, where we share our love for all things fantasy and discuss the broader speculative fiction industry. I'm your host, Travis Tippins. This week's interview is with author Joe Abercrombie. The final entry in his Age of Madness trilogy, The Wisdom of Crowds, is out now from Orbit Books. Joe and I discuss how he developed his unique writing voice, the nonfiction books he used to research the Age of Madness, and how to most effectively torment his readers. Joe is a ton of fun to talk to. I hope you enjoy the interview. Welcome to the Fantasy Inn, Joe. It's so great to have you here on the podcast. It's truly an honor and a pleasure to be taking some time off my actual work to be here with you. <laughs> hey, yeah, yeah. That's what we love to hear. Any excuse. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's the uh, same for me as well, actually. So, But yeah, so I guess jumping right into it, given that the Fantasy Inn started as a group of friends who met over on Reddit's fantasy community, I feel like I kind of have to ask, how much are you lurking on Reddit? Because your comments seem to be a little too perfectly timed to be coincidence. I'm there all the time. In fact, it's open now. I've got one eye on it. Just oh, yeah. <laughs> I need there to be aware so I can spring in and, you know, take, take action. If someone's being critical of my work, you know, I have to have one of my thousands of alt accounts mob them. And if they're being, you know, positive about my work, I need to bring that to greater attention. So, yeah, I'm, I'm always there at all times. Gotcha. You know, that's one of the main things I hear from writers, right? It's like number one writing advice. Always be ready to pounce on any mention of your work. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I've got other people to write the new books. So, uh, you know, I'm free now to completely follow the social media at all times. That's the so dream. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, okay. So, uh, can you remember what first made you fall in love with science fiction and fantasy? Well, I suppose, you know, I read the Hobbit or had the Hobbit read to me, I suppose, as a very young child. I'm not sure exactly when, but I suppose that would have been the first thing that I was really conscious of being exposed to. And then the Lord of the Rings, you know, shortly thereafter, when I was kind of, I suppose, getting into double figures by that stage and reading myself. And, uh, you know, I was fascinated by the Lord of the Rings, really, um, which is probably not unusual for someone of my generation. And uh, I, I read it every year for a while. And I started looking for other similar things. And I came upon the Wizard of Earthsea, Ursula Le Guin, relatively early on. And then all kinds of other stuff like, you know, Dragonlance, David Eddings, writers of that kind, uh, you know, the commercial fantasy that was sort of popular in the, in the early and, and late 80s, I guess. And I was also playing an awful lot of role-playing games around that time, a lot of, a lot of Dungeons and Dragons, uh, Warhammer, fantasy role-play, you know, things like that. So I was very much immersed in the, in the fantasy scene, although I wasn't really, you know, there was no fandom at that time that I was connected with. So it was just me and a few friends meeting up to play role-playing games and, you know, getting whatever books were in the, the bookshop window that had a dragon on, really. There was yep. no kind of system <laughs> of recommendation. And so, you know, I was just, I was, I, was, I was very into it while not really being part of any official scene at all, I suppose. 
Yeah, I know for me, I wasn't even aware there was any sort of official scene whatsoever until uh, the last few years. And I definitely fondly remember my time uh, browsing shells for anything with a sword on it was me. Uh, less so the dragon, just anything with a sword or a knight. That was what I was picking up. Yeah, absolutely. And this was long before the internet kind of came about. And so it's hard to imagine how you did find things then. You know, everything is so much at your fingertips. Like-minded communities are everywhere, you know, easily found now. So I don't even really know how one got recommendations. You just pick things up that looked like your kind of thing, I suppose. And so I read a huge amount of fantasy, you know, in my teenage years and other things as well. And then I guess I, I kind of drifted away from it as I got into my late teens and early 20s. And I found, you know, it was kind of predictable, a lot of fantasy at that time, a lot of what was in the front of the bookstore anyway. You felt like you were reading the same thing a lot. And I kind of felt I wanted something more shocking and dark and unpredictable and character focused and all that good stuff that I was maybe seeing in, you know, Westerns and, and noir fiction and other styles of fiction that I was reading. And so I just kind of drifted away a little bit. No, no big decision to turn my back on it or anything. I just started reading other things. And then in the 90s, a friend of mine uh, said, you used to read fantasy, didn't you? And he, he gave me Game of Thrones. He pressed a dog-eared paperback of Game of Thrones, a Game of Thrones, I should say, into my hands. And um, I kind of thought, ah, oh, I know exactly what this is going to be. You know, it has a knight on the front and a castle. And I, I've seen this before. And of course, I saw in that book a lot of what I felt had been missing, you know, in that fusion of very classic epic fantasy that I kind of at heart really love still with a more kind of character focused, more immersive, uh, more shocking and surprising and sort of narratively bold approach that, that I really felt is what I've been missing. And I thought, man, you can do this, you know, with an epic fantasy. And I suppose that was kind of a, although I'd had a lot of ideas for a long time about how I might go about writing something myself and had tried a little bit in the past, that was really, I think, the, the spur that made me, you know, really want to try to write something of my own. That and also Fellowship of the Ring coming out in 2001, which happened around the time I started writing. And that obviously was kind of a, wow, you know, suddenly <laughs> there was a vision and a, a visual representation of what fantasy, what epic fantasy could be. That was, you know, again, a big, a big inspiring kind of moment. Yeah, I remember those movies as a big kind of defining point in my fantasy-loving uh, life as well. Um, and yeah, you definitely can't see any kind of uh, influence from a Game of Thrones in your writing. None of that uh, cynicism or grit at all. No, well, you know, I've, I've obviously moved far beyond the primitive template that George set up in, in those <laughs> early days. So we can be forgiven for not realizing that we have a huge amount in common, of course. Exactly, exactly. Well, yeah, so uh, something I've been wondering is in other interviews and panels and such, uh, you come across as a relatively confident guy, though I think it's fair to say that for most writers, that's not always the case when they're starting out. Uh, and I know you used to even keep your writing a secret, like working in the middle of the night before you finally worked up the courage to show it to anyone. So how exactly did that go down when you finally opened up to show your work to others? Yeah, I mean, I was very reluctant to admit I was doing it. It was, it was a secret, definitely a guilty secret. I was, I was writing late at night after everyone else had gone to bed, you know, hunched over the computer. And if anyone appeared, I would immediately, very suspiciously, you know, pretend I'd been doing something else. I'm not sure what they thought I was doing. 
I think, yeah, you know, when you, when you first start writing, or for me anyway, I was very nervous about it. You know, I was kind of putting myself out there. I think if you write well, you've got to leave it all on the table and be as kind of raw and honest as you possibly can. That's the only way you'll produce anything interesting, really. And so that can be quite a tough test, you know, because you really feel you put yourself out there in a way I hadn't really before. You know, where I, I was working at that time as a as a video editor, a TV editor, making documentaries, concerts, things like that. And that was a great job in many ways, you know, one that I was lucky to have and, and I think it was a very valuable experience. But you're always very much a technician who's brought in to do your specific part of the, of the task, you know. Mm-hmm. You're not responsible for originating the idea. Um, you're not taking final responsibility for it. You can do important and valuable work and really improve and be a valuable member of the team. but you're not, it's not your vision, you know, it's not yourself being exposed in the way that it is when you're trying to write something, such a personal kind of one person endeavor in a way. And so, yeah, I was very nervous about showing it to people. And and I guess I was doing it maybe five or six months before I sort of finally felt, okay, I need to see if I'm onto something. I kind of felt like I was interested in what was coming out in a way Mm -hmm. I hadn't been when I tried in previous occasions to write. So I felt like I was, I was interested in it and was really enjoying doing it and, and kind of surprised and excited by what was coming out. But, uh, you know, there's a big difference between liking it yourself and thinking anyone else will like it. And so I did the thing you're supposed not to do, which is I showed it to my parents. You know, they say, <laughs> never show stuff to your parents because they'll, be, they'll, they'll pat you on the head and be too kind and indulgent. And you know, they don't know my parents, the people who say that. You know, they're, they're as tough and educated and difficult an audience as I will find, I think, in many ways. Not an unsupportive one, but a very, you know, an uncompromising one, for sure. My mum was an English teacher and my my dad was a sociologist. They're both very well read and kind of understand literature pretty well. And that's where I get a lot of my kind of uh, literary interest, I suppose, is is through them. Um, And so they were the natural people to show it to for me. And my mum always tells it differently, says that I'm, I'm misrepresenting. But the way I remember it is that I gave them a few chapters to read and she, you know, read it and then kind of looked up and said, well, you know, it's, uh, it's not as bad as I thought it would be. Yeah. And so at that moment, <laughs> I had won the highest of praise from the harshest of juries. And, the, you know, there was, there was something there. And in a way, early on, they had a huge amount of advice to give and comments to make and, I'd write chunks of book and they would read them and we'd talk about and, and discuss them. And that was sort of what I was doing it for in a sense, you know, improving and learning how to go about it and, and pooling everyone's opinions and applying those. And I'd rewrite things over and over and over, um, you know, working on different aspects of the voice really and the detail of how it was written. Um, and also thinking long-term about what I was trying to do with a series, because for some reason I set out to write a huge trilogy which is not always the best <laughs> idea, I don't think. But uh, that's what I'd read, you know, yeah, big-ass series. And so I thought, I'm going to write a big-ass series. It never occurred to me to write anything else. So, yeah, I was writing it for them, and I was writing it to kind of for, for the enjoyment of doing it and discussing it with them. And after a couple of years, two or three years, I guess, I had a book or, you know, the first part of a three-part story anyway. And I thought, before I plow yet more years into this, I should at least get an idea of the market and get a sense of whether anyone thinks this is publishable. Back then, this was, you know, 
2003, 2004, I suppose. So self-publishing just, it's hard to believe now, but self-publishing didn't yeah. really exist in the way that it does now. There was no Amazon. There was no Amazon. <laughs> you know, at least Amazon was somewhere where you occasionally bought a CD. You know, yeah, it, it hard to believe these days. <laughs> absolutely incredible, really, for anyone who's grown up and appeared during this time and self-publishes themselves. But you know, self-publishing meant printing 3,000 paperbacks and finding a rep to rep you to bookshops. That was what self-publishing meant. It was a whole different, vastly more challenging not that self-publishing now isn't challenging, but it was vastly more challenging sure. even then. So that wasn't an option, really. So I, can't, I really started thinking I need to see if anyone would ever be interested in publishing this. And that was the next step. Yeah. And uh, I think you have kind of an interesting story for how uh, you actually got picked up with your editor, right? The kind of friend of a friend being, hey, I know someone who's a writer. Uh, you should check out their work. Yeah. I mean... I think, in a way, everyone has has a, a, at least a vaguely interesting story. I mean, mm. most people have there's something slightly unusual or different about it. The way I always describe it is, you know, the, the odds of any given encounter producing anything are extremely long. You know, it's like hoping to be struck by lightning, but if you run around in the rain under a storm cloud, you up your chances. So <laughs> you've just got to get out there and be as, you know, be as, as sort of self-promoting as you can be and try and get your stuff into the hands of as many people as you can. And so I've done the traditional thing of trying to find an agent and looking up agents who represented that kind of work and, and submitting to them and being very careful in the way I submitted and writing a lovely letter and all those things. And that hadn't really produced any, you know, I'd had not, not a, a sort of a legendary confederacy of dunces style number of rejections, but I'd, <laughs> I'd got quite a lot, you know, six or seven, I guess. And I've yep. gone through the best candidates, it seems to me, for, for agents. And, you know, this was over the period of sort of six or seven months. So I was also gradually being a bit more honest and letting people know generally that I was doing it. An old friend of my brother's, who I was in a band with as a kid, funnily enough, oh, huh. um, he uh, had ended up working at an educational publisher at Heinemann in the UK as an editor. And he happened to be on a desk editing course, and he knew that I was doing it. And on this desk editing course with him, was a woman called Gillian Redfern, who was just starting as an assistant editor at uh, at Galance. And they were talking and she said what she was doing and the imprint she was at. And he said, oh God, eternally blessed uh, for this. He said, oh, this friend of mine's written a fantasy thing. Would you like to take a look? And since she was just starting and had not yet realized, uh, possibly, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know how low the hit rate is on these things. She said, yeah, I'll have a look. So, you know, I sent her 50 pages, I think it was. And she read it and asked to see some more. And so I sent her the rest of the book. And she read that and asked for a kind of treatment for the whole trilogy. And so I was forced to finally do a proper treatment for the whole trilogy. And got an offer a week later. So there you go. She saw. She saw what so many others could not see. There you go. Yeah, I mean, like you were saying, uh, I don't think I've talked to a single writer who has had what you would call like a normal journey into publication, although uh, I'm not convinced that there is such a thing in the first place. Well, I'm not sure. I mean, there certainly are people who kind of follow a path of they write short stories, they write for a while, they develop their craft, they find an agent, the agent lands them a contract, there you go. You know, so there there definitely are those kind of more traditional routes but it's really just all about getting your stuff in front of the person who's going to say yes. And the more desks it crosses, 
the more is that chance, you know? And I think as well, if you, if there's anything that's a bit, things that are very commercial and straight ahead and very similar to what is working right now, obviously do have a bit of a better chance because it's easier for people to recognize straight away what they've got. Yeah. Things that are maybe a little bit more challenging or offbeat, and I don't think that I'm massively challenging or offbeat, but maybe a little bit more so than some epic fantasy was at that time. You know, those things are always going to be a bit of a tougher sell, even if, you know, perhaps the potential is greater, depending. It's all about hitting that moment, that right moment, isn't it? I suppose I, I was lucky that I was kind of writing the right thing at the right time. I thought I was doing something incredibly edgy and dangerous. Because, <laughs> you know, I'd been reading David Eddings and that was still sort of what fantasy was in my sure. mind a little bit. But unknown to me, obviously, Game of Thrones had happened and, and other things too. And I think the middle ground of fantasy had kind of moved much more to meet the kind of thing I was doing. So it was nowhere near as, as extreme as, as I rather fondly imagined at the time. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's I guess, a perfect chance for me to ask you about uh, your feelings on the grimdark genre, as it were, because I know uh, you somewhat tongue-in-cheek have your uh, handle on Twitter as Lord Grimdark. I think that was maybe chosen before Grimdark was really an established thing. Yeah, well, I mean, absolutely. And, and obviously, when I first started writing, I never heard the phrase. Uh, no one used it, really. I first started hearing it, I think, maybe... A sort of 2010, 2011 kind of time, would it be? Hard to remember now, but sometime after I was, you know, I had a few books out there already before I started hearing it. And when I first started hearing it, it was always in the, in the kind of context of a pejorative, you know, this is yeah. ridiculous, this is over the top, this is silly, morbid, uh, gratuitously violent, you know, in the filth for the sake of it. And that was how people use Grimdark, you know, so they'd say things like, oh man, you know, First Law's Grimdark, isn't it? But Game of Thrones, that's not Grimdark because it's good. You know, that was the difference. If it was good, it wasn't Grimdark. And so that was the, the tone in which I called myself Lord Grimdark. It was like deliberately say, you know, no one at the time that I, that I did that could have thought it wasn't absurd. Of course, at that very moment, for some unknown reason, that I still don't fully understand. I suppose it was that there were a lot of books of that type being written and it kind of, it came to capture a sort of movement within epic fantasy towards cynical storytelling and a lot of splatter. And it captures kind of a lot of different things in a very broad net. That's part of the problem with the term. It's very hard to pin down what anyone ever means by it. You know, some people mean extremely cynical, dark and over the top and, and somber and solemn. Other people mean a kind of, self-referential tongue-in-cheek uh gallows humor type it has to have that some talk only about the violence or lots of kind of sex or swearing and kind of general moral depravity as being the hallmarks and no one really quite agrees on what it is and so i was sort of shocked to see it go from this obvious you know joke to people taking it seriously as a, as a descriptor and i still <laughs> feel a bit shocked by it because People often use it when they're making a sort of very sweeping generalization that actually doesn't apply to anything. You know, so they'll say Grimdark is this or Grimdark is that, but they'll never say what books they mean. And so you're left sure. thinking, are you talking about me or are you not talking about me? Because that's what's really important, whether anyone's talking about me, of course, in my own mind. Of course, of course. And so I'm never sure exactly what people mean by it. And indeed, you, you will occasionally, you know, talking about 
Reddit Fantasy, which is, you know, probably one of the most active and vibrant communities for this kind of thing. When people discuss Grimdark over there, no one ever agrees what they're talking about. They can't even <laughs> yep. start on a definition of what it is without everyone disagreeing. So it's rather a frustrating term. And I think, as with all these genre definitions, they're, they're only really useful insofar as they might connect a reader with a book they like. Sure. Or they uh, steer a reader away from a book they don't. But any wider conversations are often a little bit difficult. And after all, you know, the writers people think of as grimdark writers, and that varies very much from one to another, are very different and have very different approaches and very different ideas. And they're only one kind of strain within a much wider community that has all kinds of other things going on now. I mean, one great thing about fantasy as it is in the last 10 to 20 years is it is so varied and there's so much different stuff going on. Whereas at one time it felt like books like Dragonlance. Now it feels like it's a much broader, wider, wilder, more literary thing. And obviously there's always been lots of different stuff there, but it just wasn't very visible, I think, for a long time. Yeah. And I mean, on that note, because I, I do often like to say that, you know, I feel like we're living in a golden age of fantasy and science fiction where there's just so much breadth and depth out there, so much variety. There's probably something for just about anyone. But if I'm understanding correctly, you don't really have that same kind of spark when reading fantasy books these days. It's hard to turn off your writer brain. It kind of feels like work. Yeah, I, I, I think so. I mean, I don't read very much fantasy. I don't, I don't read a huge amount of fiction. I think. Uh... It's like the builder's house is never finished. You know, mm-hmm. the plumber's house, is no, the shower doesn't work. The last thing the plumber wants to do when he comes home from a day fixing showers is fix his own shower. And I kind of feel like reading fantasies work, you know, nine times out of 10, 99 times out of 100, it feels like, it feels like work. And I find it very hard to turn off that analytic part of my brain that is working when I read my own stuff from the point of view of reviewing and revising, which is what I do, you know, spend a lot of my time doing. And so it's very hard for me to kind of just read it as I would have done when I was an enthusiast for it. So, yeah, I mean, I think being a fantasy writer has slightly killed my appreciation for for the genre a little bit, which is unfortunate. I mean, there are obviously things that, um, you know, are, are, are far enough away from what I do that I don't have that issue so much. So, you know, a writer like Jeff Vandermeer, say, who writes, yeah. you know, highly weird, very surreal, uh, unusual stuff that's, that's, you know, closer to Burroughs than it is to Tolkien, really. Although sure. you know, it kind of is bits from all over. That I find I can, I can, you know, read without the same issue. But stuff that's anywhere near my own arena, I find very hard to kind of lose myself in. I mean, occasionally it does happen. Occasionally, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll read a book in it. It grabs me and, you know, it's, it's the voice I respond to always, really. It's the authorial voice and the feeling of being carried away by fluent storytelling and a, and a way of expressing and telling the story that is, that is kind of unique and arresting. When I find a book like that, then, yeah, but they're, they're kind of pretty rare, I find, on the whole. Generally, I read a lot of nonfiction and a lot of, you know, fiction that's, that's somehow germane to what I'm working on. So, you know, The Age of Madness, which obviously has an industrial revolutionary kind of milieu setting. I read a lot of novels from the French Revolution, novels from the 
Russian Revolution, that kind of thing, but also a lot of nonfiction about the Industrial Revolution and about that whole period. So, yeah, I tend to read that kind of thing much more than I do um, fantasy on the whole. Sure. I mean, any specific nonfiction titles then along those lines that you can recommend? Uh, of recent of recent times, I'm trying to think. Well, I read a book called Citizens by Simon Shammer, which is a kind of big, sprawling history of the French Revolution. That was that was pretty good. I'm trying to think of recent ones I've read. It's always this way when you get asked for recommendations. You can't remember <laughs> yep. a single thing <laughs> that you've actually read. I read a book called uh, The Gods Will Have Blood, uh, which is a French novel, I think written around the 1900s, so not at the time of the French Revolution, but not modern either. That was a really great book because it kind of seemed to have that slightly archaic tone of the time while it had a bit of a more modern, edgy sensibility than you'd expect. Anatole France wrote that, originally in French, that's translated. So yeah, I've just kind of read all kinds of stuff of that type. I read uh, Hilary Mantel's book about um, the French Revolution as well, uh, A Place of Greater Safety. Okay. And other stuff. And other stuff, yep. (laughs) Stay tuned for more after the break. Eyes Shut Studios presents... Fenrir. So, you want to hear a story, do you? The name's Fenrir, and this is my Amir. Rowan. A breathtaking audio journey set in a mythical land. Bring on. No! God, it's full. <gasps> With unforgettable creatures. Harp walkers. They're enormous! And danger around every corner. Don't forget your history, boy! You are a Yomir! No, no, no! Rowan. Rowan. So it is true. This is what we get for disturbing the balance. It is the light. That blinds us. Rowan, I think we're gonna need it. To the darkest shadows, it creates. (laughs) Thank you, Fenrir. We were looking to make our exit. Fenrir, on all platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podcast Addicts, and more. New episodes every 15th of the month. Well, uh, okay, so we've been talking for a while and we haven't quite dug into your current city, the Age of Madness. So mm. I guess let's uh, go ahead and dig in. What were your main goals with writing this Age of Madness trilogy? I know the first Law trilogy felt like your spin on, you know, sort of the classic Tolkien epic. Uh, you got to explore new genres with each of your standalone books in that world. Uh, mm. And you even kind of went into a whole new world um, as well with the Shattered Sea books. So. Mm. What were your goals coming back to this world with a cohesive sequel trilogy? Well, I mean, one of the main goals was to write more books. <laughs> Fair and, enough. Yeah, also to fulfill a contract that I'd failed to fulfill. <laughs> and I'd owned those books for a while, and so I had to write some books. This is probably taking more of the romance and magic out of the writing process than one would like to. Well, to a certain extent, I mean, writing is a job, right? Uh, you do have to uh, approach it with the business side in mind as well. Yeah, and, and I, uh, I think people often have a book in their hearts, 
you know, that they want to write. And I did. And that was the first one. And I wrote that. <laughs> and now I don't have a book in my heart. Do you know what I mean? Sure. Yeah. Um, I don't have a kind of project the muse has brought to me. I have to find one for myself. Yeah. I mean, uh, muse is overrated. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. And she, she always visits the people who are working already, right? Yep. Funny how that works. I guess, you know, some people are real fountains of ideas. And, you know, they, I talk to writers sometimes and they're like, oh, I don't know which of my 15 ideas to develop next. You know, I have the exact opposite problem. I have no ideas, generally. Um, I'm, I'm presented with a blank page and I sort of work them up in quite a stodgy and workmanlike way. And so, as you say, I, I'd written the first of all trilogy, I'd written three standalones in that same world. And I, I felt like I wanted to write more in that world. I'm not someone who necessarily wants to just kind of smash the scenery up to make more scenery. And I do like the continuity and having a lot of characters on the, on the shelf and things that form a kind of known history that you can draw on and pull out right. characters and recurring themes, things like that. I, I enjoy that a lot. Um, so I wanted to write, a I felt like another trilogy in that world was the way to go. And uh, I guess I'd always been frustrated by the kind of fantasy worlds I'd encountered a lot as a kid, which feel like they're sort of set in amber. You know, there's no economic and social progress, really. They're an eternal medieval sandbox. And war conflict is because there is an evil, a world-threatening alien evil, if you like. And so it's a, a battle of good against evil against a sort of unchanging backdrop. I suppose, you know, in being someone who reads a lot of history and a lot of nonfiction, I, I tended to see the world much more as a sort of ongoing story with a constant layer of technological and economic change boiling away. And it's that that creates these kind of tensions that lead to conflict of one kind or another as often as not. And so I wanted my world to kind of reflect that and be in a state of change and flux and, and you know, telling stories at those moments of kind of social tipping points where things are changing and that's creating a lot of conflict and tension in the society. And so in the first law, it's a kind of period where it's a rise of the merchant class, I suppose, is going on, although it's not the focus of the story by any means. But in the union, money is becoming more and more powerful and the kind of old ways of the nobility are fading in importance, as it were. And so that was kind of the backdrop to that book. But it felt like the logical next step in progress would be, you know, to tackle an industrial revolution or the early, early industrial revolution anyway, not so much steam power, but kind of water power, entrepreneurism, you know, the, the shift of the working class from the rural farm work to kind of urban factory work, the, the big changes in society that happened in the kind of 17, 1800s, really. That requires a little bit of a, le jeu de main is a bit of a pretentious word, but, you know, sleight of hand as far sure. as taking the world from a kind of 15th, 16th century to 17th, 18th, 19th century. But it's fantasy, isn't it? So if you can't do it in fantasy, then why are you writing fantasy? You know? Yeah, sure. I mean, anything's possible, right? It's more of a flavor than it is kind of a consistent trope-filled genre. Exactly. I mean, you want to just put together the elements that create the drama and the fun without worrying too much about whether they are strictly, totally rational. Because uh, historical fiction is the genre of things that are very explainable and make sense. Right. But anyway, um, and it, so it was kind of to take the first law world into a into an industrial era, really, and 
to follow a new generation of characters because I've always liked to change the points of view, don't like to get too bogged down in, in individuals. And I feel like if you're changing the points of view and you're very much a character-focused writer, then that is very much changing the approach and the style that you're using and feels like a very different book, even if you're working in a very, you know, in a familiar setting that you've worked in before. While at the same time, you have some of those old characters on the hook that you can bring back and use and give you a sense of continuity. And that obviously, you know, with readers who've read the earlier books, they're going to have a resonance and they're going to understand right. history in a way that possibly even the, the current characters don't know. You know, they're going to know some of the secrets before they appear. So there's some fun to be had there as well. So it was really about just coming up with a new set of characters, coming up with a plot that would, you know, work within this kind of industrial revolutionary, you know, background, if you like, and working with what I had already. And I'd had an idea many years before. Well, I'd sold on it, obviously, because, you know, when I say I had an idea, I watched um, Shakespeare's Histories over a weekend. Uh, it was over two weekends, actually. So it's eight plays over two weekends, three on a Saturday and one on a Sunday, and they had the same cast all the way through and a kind of consistency in the, in the staging. So it was an RSC production. It was, ama- it was amazing. Like, best theatre I've ever seen. Incredible it was. And it was really inspiring and interesting. But also, I kind of thought, oh, Henry IV, part one, which I happen to have studied at school, has a fundamental tension in it between Prince Hal, who's a kind of wastrel. A wastrel with cunning, but a wastrel. Sure. He's the son of an ineffectual king who's let the kingdom kind of become a bit of a mess. And he's contrasted with Hotspur, Harry Hotspur, who's this glorious heroic figure in the north who's winning wars against the Scots and doing all the stuff that the prince is expected to do but can't because he's a useless wastrel. Right? That's the fundamental setup. And I thought, I'll have that. That's the <laughs> fundamental setup of Age of Madness because I had the sort of slightly, slightly past his best, never that great king. And so I thought, I'll give him a wastrel son who's ineffective. Kingdom's running into trouble because there's all these social tensions going on. And there's a glorious heroic figure in the north who's kind of, you know, making friends while still beating the sort of northern barbarians and, and is adding an extra layer of tension because he's making the, the sort of heir to the throne look doubly useless. And so that was kind of the fundamental, the fundamental bones of the story. But obviously there's all kinds of other stuff going on as well because I can't write short books because I'm an idiot. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's a, not the idiot part, but the uh, all <laughs> kinds of stuff part. I think that's kind of key, right? Because you say you don't have this like endless well of ideas, but it's more of, I feel like, people tend to think that an idea is just this magical thing that pops out of nowhere. And there you go. That's half the work of the book right there. But yeah. you've got like the combination of the Shakespeare influence. You've got uh, trying to build forth on your first law world and bring it forward into a new time. And, you know, the uh, ever-present contract. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think people also feel that sometimes that writing is a, is a noble artistic endeavor that should not be corrupted by the, the kind of commercial imperatives, if you like. and. To me, it's never, I've never felt that way. I often feel that, you know, a lot of the best art derives from a certain level of pressure. You know, like Star Wars for me is far better film than either the prequels or the much later sequels because it's made in the sort of crucible and necessity, if you like, and they worked out a lot of ingenious things because they had to. 
You know, with, with the prequels, Lucas could do whatever he liked and it's a flabby mess. You know, and with the sequels, they had boundless budget and it's a flabby mess, really. <laughs> and so I kind of am a big believer in deadlines and in, you know, thinking about writing a book that works in all kinds of ways. I mean, I think that pressure is what makes something, is what crushes the, the turds into diamonds. There you like. go. <laughs> and so I, when I'm working out a book, I'm always thinking, will this work for the audience? You know, you don't want that to be the only consideration by any stretch of the imagination, but it's one among many, you know. I'm not thinking, what do I want? What do I want all the time? Although that obviously is a consideration too. You start off with a blank canvas, you could do anything, you know. And so what people might want to read is certainly one strand in what you're thinking about. Yeah, absolutely. And I know, so we've talked about the setting changing over time, but I know mm. the actual first law kind of concept changed quite a bit. I know, I think you were uh, a young lad of maybe 20 or so, and you started out with this like bright, heroic story. And then uh, life happened. You got a little more world wise and uh, maybe world weary, and that kind of developed your signature tone. Um, so, I mean, how, how did that evolve over time? Oh, yeah. Well, I started writing, you know, I guess I was talking about playing a lot of role-playing games and reading a lot of heroic fantasy as a, you know, a teenager, 13, 14, 15. And a lot of the ideas and even some of the characters go back to those times. So, you know, I had an idea for a wizard called Beaz then, and he was sort of on my mind. He was a bald guy with a beard, a bit like the, the current one, but he yeah. was very unlike <laughs> in terms of his motives and the way he went about things. So I suppose those characters sort of sat with me for many years and I was occasionally thinking about a story I might write with them. And as I got older, they got, you know, a bit more adult, a bit more conflicted, a bit more gray, I suppose. But I first had a go at writing a book that had become the blade itself. And when I was about 20, just after leaving university and, uh, I did a psychology degree. So I had no skills, obviously. And I uh, <laughs> thought I should develop some. And so I thought I'd learn a touch type. And once I'd worked out where the keys were, it seemed like a good idea to kind of, you know, just practice would be to write the great 20th century, well, 21st century? No, it was still 20th century then. Novel, you know? As one does. <laughs> as one does. I thought I'd finally do this thing. And so I wrote a few chapters of that. And as you say, it was very, it probably had a few gags in it, but it didn't have the tone that the stuff had later. And so I put it down. I went away. I worked in TV for 10 years. I read Game of Thrones and I read a huge amount of other stuff. I read James Elroy's LA Quartet. Uh, I think I read Larry McMurtry's Lonesome Dove. I read Solzhenitsyn's Cancer Ward. A few other kind of heavyweight modernist fiction, really. And so my, my, you know, my eyes were quite opened from a literary standpoint. And yeah, when I came back to try it again, which was really just because I found myself with time on my hands again. Um, I was working as a freelance editor and in that world, you maybe have, you know, you're called in for a job for six weeks, then you've got another job for two weeks, but there's a gap in between, you know, a couple of weeks. Sure. Line up. And you have a day's work here, day's work there, doing other things, but you end up with these chunks of time, you know, a week where you've basically not got much on. And after a while playing video games solidly during those periods, I started to think, oh, maybe I should do something more, you know, with a bit more potential. And I was a bit frustrated with editing as a profession, only in the sense that, you know, it's a great job, but 
you can do the same thing for 50 years and not really move. No one's got any, any kind of vested interest in moving you because if they hire you to do a job and if you do a good job, they want you to keep doing that good job. You know, they don't want to develop you into a director or into something else. And I'd be editing a documentary and I was in my mid-20s and next door there'd be another editor doing another episode of that series and he'd be in his late 60s. You know, and I'd kind of think, oh, do I want to be doing exactly the same thing in 40 years, you know? So I thought, man, it'd be nice to have something that I control and that I do, you know, and I have full creative control over. Because, you know, it's lovely to work with a director, but sometimes it's frustrating when you do a great sequence and they come in and say, no, 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 it should be more like this. You, you Sometimes you want to have that that control. So I thought I'd give it, give the writing another go. And it came out straight away with a very different tone with this kind of world weary is the one way to put it but a kind of cynical tongue-in-cheek tone that i was straight away interested by and the different characters developed quite quickly a very different voice which was something i was really keen to do because i'd seen that done and really admired that in in other books that i'd read like james elroy you know writing that really puts you in the head of the character so you can really tell something about the person just from the way the stuff's written and so straight away, I just, I just started to become quite fascinated by what was coming out, I suppose. And that was, yeah, how the approach changed between my first abortive efforts and my much more serious efforts later. Yeah, I mean, so you said you didn't want to be stuck editing and doing the same thing for, you know, your entire career. Do you feel that sticking with so far the first law world for 20 or so years, do you feel like you still have that extra control or are you falling into the well, same area? Why do you write the same book over and over if you say you don't like to do the same thing? Yeah. Um, I, I suppose I try and uh, do something somewhat different with each book. I think it's very easy to get into a, a kind of rut as a writer, especially if you have, you know, any level of success there'll always then be readers who want more of the same, you know, and and who say, when's the next book with X? When's the next Logan Nine Fingers book? When's this? When's that? You know, and they expect that. And there's, there's a certain level of creative and commercial safety in doing that, producing more of the same. But I think in the end, generally speaking, it's hard to maintain your own interest in that. You know, it's easy to become a bit of a pastiche of yourself. You have to try and uh, keep doing slightly new things and pushing yourself a little bit each time, which is why I sort of, having done three books, wanted to do those standalone books. I mean, I'm not really a settings guy, so doing different setting didn't necessarily appeal, but a different style of story appealed with different characters and, and with a, a, you know, a different approach, a different length. And so tackling three different kind of genres with the three different standalones was was what I did. And, you know, I think it's always about pushing things along a little, but not necessarily doing something wildly and utterly different. You know, you want to check the readers you've got with you up to a point. No one wants to lose readers. That's what the writers are in the business of. So, you know, you you try and nudge things along and take things in different directions. And I think that means that every time you'll gain some readers, some will like your books less than the ones they read before. Others will like them more. And I take a kind of perverse pleasure in the fact that generally there's very little agreement on what my best book is. Sure. You know, yeah, that's good. <laughs> the book, you know, that he wrote and everything else is kind of secondary to that one. Different people have, you know, there's a very broad spread of opinion about what, what, what the best ones are and what the worst ones are. 
I think that's good because I've tried to do t- different things and have different kinds of characters and different kinds of story. And up to a point, I think that's worked. I don't think it's necessarily the high road to blistering commercial success because there's writers who do much more scattergun different things than me. And I think, you know, it's hard to keep a career pushing on that way. You know, the easy thing, the, the most sensible and straightforward thing commercially is to kind of very much keep punching the same bag, you know, and, and that's how you really build the readership. And, and I, I have punched the same bag up to a point. It's not like I've done wildly crazy different things each time. But I try to do enough different to at least keep me interested. That's the hope. Yeah. Uh, and so I guess kind of on a similar note, uh, if your original first law writing was kind of defined as a bit of a pushback against like that classic heroic fantasy, um, how would you define it now? I mean, I guess put another way, now that the fantasy genre is no longer lacking that grit and gray morality it used to, how do you continue to differentiate yourself? Yeah, well, you don't do. You become the establishment. You become that which you rail against. <laughs> Die a hero or live long enough to see yourself become the villain. Um, there you go. <laughs> I don't know. It's a good question. And, and, you know, the first law was very, very consciously my take on classic fantasy. And it wasn't even really initially intended to be a hugely subversive take either. You know, it was just my version of it incorporating the things that I wanted and that I liked. Sure. And I think, you know, I've always admired something like Unforgiven, you know, the film, because it's a very classic Western in many ways. And I love very classic Westerns, but it also presents a new spin on the material and does something kind of original in the tone and the way it's delivered, which also serves as a kind of commentary on the genre as a whole. And I've always, you know, loved that. I've loved things that, you know, aren't ashamed or you know, are very happy to sit in a genre and to talk about the genre they're in and to be part of it and in, in conversation with the other examples. And so that's kind of what I suppose very broadly I was, I was aiming to do with the first floor. It was very much a take on classic epic fantasy with a, a wizard, a, wizardly, a mysterious wizardly mentor, not the most original character type. Slightly more, different than Gandalf, maybe. Kind of similar in many ways. And, and, you know, a boy with a special destiny, although he's a bit of an ass. And, you know, a, a used-up man of violence trying, seeking redemption. They're not exactly blowing the doors off originality. And, and, you know, I'm perfectly happy with that because I feel like, you know, they're, they're interesting takes on those classic types, which is very much what I was trying to do. And, you know, it has a war of a righteous empire against an evil empire, although, you know, we obviously learn that's not quite what's going on and uh, a quest across a dangerous country for a weird magical object and all those things that we love to see in fantasy. And that's very much what I wanted to do. But having done that, you're right, you need to do something else. And so I suppose I then tackled a kind of gangster revenge story, a war story and uh, a Western, really, as three genres I've often very much enjoyed. I kind of wanted to do the same thing with those. And with Age of Madness, I couldn't tell you what the genre is in that way. I mean, I think it has somewhat perhaps more emerged as its own thing. I mean, it's a kind of epic sweep of love and war. It's one of them, isn't it? Yeah. It's like, uh, is, is, is it like a bit of like a war and a peace sort of a thing, a war and peace or a north and south? Or... Uh, it could be a war and peace thing, to be honest. I haven't worked up the courage to read that. So. <laughs> there you go. Maybe that can be next. I don't know. I wouldn't presume. But uh, I don't know what it is, honestly. And, and that was slightly worrying to me and perhaps still is, 
that it fits much less into kind of classic epic fantasy than the first law did. But you've got to try and do new things somewhat. And so I'm not sure what it is. What would you say it is? You're the genre expert here. I don't know if I would call myself a genre expert, but yeah, I mean, I, I think I can't really go much beyond what you were saying, where, you know, it's always trying to push the boundaries uh, and pushing the boundaries does not mean necessarily bursting through those boundaries and breaking them down and doing something totally different. Uh, but as long as I guess you're continuing to push and try something a little bit new, then I guess as a reader, I mean, that's all I can ask for. Yeah. And, you know, for me, it's just interesting characters kind of doing silly things. That's that's a, a great summary of all the first law books, you know, uh, all the detail you need captures it perfectly. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I guess on a slightly lighter note, um, I suspect I know the answer to this. So what line of yours do you get readers most often quoting back to you? And why is it always variations of say one thing for Joe Abercrombie, say he's. <laughs> it, is, it is that. But, you know, I totally did that to myself by deciding to repeat the phrase not 1500 times in the in the book um so i sort of asked for that one i can't really complain um and it does work or at least it does work for me um and I, i've always enjoyed that repeated kind of phrase thing it's something that's just ha- started to happen early on because you know i'd be writing and revising and going over and over given chapters and, and often what i do is i'd go over the chapters of a certain character together to try and get the tone of them, you know, coherent and the same, feel the same. And, you know, certain phrases would sort of leap out as being right for that character and I'd end up using them again or with a little variation. And, you know, they end up becoming a kind of running joke, but then one you can sort of pay off by doing something slightly different or off key with. And once you've established the pattern, then breaking the pattern has an effect. You know, and so, and the, the good thing about say one thing for Logan Ironfingers or say one thing for whoever it is, you know, you can give it a slightly different punchline each time. And so, although people obviously recognize the phrase, there's different usages of the phrase that they kind of enjoy at different times. So that one does seem to seem to have landed with people. But I think if you do that thing of, you know, repeating a phrase often, then you can't be too surprised if people repeat it back at you. Yeah, I mean, I... Uh... If you had to choose, are there any other phrases that you'd prefer people to repeat back to you? I don't know if I'd prefer. I mean, there are certainly ones that, that stick out to me. I mean, you know, body found floating by the docks is one that, that you hear a few times. You can never have too many knives. Yeah. You have to be realistic. You know, you have to be realistic was good because it kind of, it was, it, it slightly served as a sort of, uh, you know, a motto for the character of Logan. It also gives you uh, the chance to, once you expand to like the children of previous characters, you can kind of see when they have these thoughts where they got that from without any yeah. extra explanation. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And, and so that callback is, is, quite a, is quite a nice trick. And it's nice for people to feel like they've read all these books and they, they get something special out of it. You know, they get some special resonance out of it. Um, but it was also a kind of good mission statement for those books, I guess, which was to kind of, I mean, realistic is always a weird word to use about fantasy, isn't it? But just to try and, you know, look at some of these tropes and, and, and ask what they'd be like in the real world or what, what, the, what the flip side of them might be, the darker version of them might be. So that one always worked well. You have to be realistic. And of course, the fact is that he's incredibly unrealistic in the end. That's why it's a, a sort of good gag, really. 
Yeah. Um, well, so I, I do also, the one question I definitely want to ask you before we start to run out of time here is, so as someone who, uh, to phrase it mildly, you're not necessarily the nicest person to your characters, um, and by extension, sometimes towards uh, tormenting your readers. So how, in your professional expert opinion, do you best go about torturing your readers? Well, I don't know. That's an interesting one, isn't it? I mean, people want to read about interesting characters, I think. Every reader's different, but my feeling's always been you want to read about someone interesting. You don't necessarily want to read about someone nice or appealing or, you know, who does the right thing always, but you want to read about people who are interesting and have an interesting thought process, definitely. And then you also want to read about exciting and difficult and dangerous things happening. But I suppose when you have a character who is not entirely nice and is quite unpredictable, you don't really know how they're going to react or respond in dangerous situations. And that kind of is where the excitement is. Am I following the right side? I'm always interested by are these the good guys, are these not the good guys? So, you know, I just try to set up interesting characters if I can. And that's something that often develops over time in the way that they're written um, and in uh, the course of revision and try to pull out the best things about them. And then I try to put them in the most horrible situations possible. And I suppose, you know, I'm not putting the readers in those situations. So really, I'm, I'm giving the readers a huge gift you know, by doing this. <laughs> I'm not being horrible to them. I'm, I'm being as nice as I possibly can. That's the way I see it. And I mean, the other thing that I'd say is when people say, you know, why did you do this to this character? Why did you do this horrible thing? I say, I didn't do it. I just told you about it. Yeah. You know, it happened. And I, and I mean, the terrible things are the interesting things, right? Well, yeah. Yeah. And, oh, I'm, I'm just a messenger. You know, don't shoot the messenger. <laughs> you know, I wasn't, I wasn't horrible. It was someone else. It was a character. And I told you. There you go. Um, well, so I guess looking forward a little bit, you have talked a bit about the current project you're working on. I believe it's called The Devils. Uh, is there anything you can tell us about that? <laughs> yeah, it's not finished. I can tell you that. <laughs> um, it's kind of halfway done. The, the, the original plan was, you know, I wrote The Age of Madness all in one big block. That was the idea. I was going to write it as one big book and then, you know, publish it at my leisure, as it were. And that's what I did. I mean, I drafted the whole thing, but it was a very loose draft. And then I tightened the first one up, published the first one. And then I thought, well, I've got a few months work to do on the other two because they're basically there. You can already see what happened. Yep. The work uh, expands to fill the time you have, right? Exactly correct. They weren't there at all. And uh, I slowed down and they took more time than I thought. And so in the end, rather than enjoying two or three years of total you know, free time to work on what was next because my three books were all written and ready to go. I actually ran out of time. I mean, it was fine. I got, I got the three books done totally in time and they've been published yearly and that's great. But I didn't have this ocean of time to work on the next thing that I'd kind of been expecting. And so when the next book comes out, I mean, this new one's not going to be finished. I wouldn't have thought. Different world. I'm not sure how much to give away. It's sort of a kind of a version of our world, I suppose you might say. But it's all very silly and has lots of monsters and magic. I suppose I wanted to do something that just willingly embraced a lot of the kind of fantastical things. So, you know, it has elves, it has wizards, it has werewolves and vampires. 
so a lot more uh, explicitly up in your face about the magic than maybe your previous books. A lot more explicitly fantastical stuff, but at the same time treated in a slightly tongue-in-cheek way. More than that, it's hard to say, really. Uh, the, the plan was just to write something and have, uh, have fun with it, not worry too much about making it coherent or cohesive, sort of deal with that later, concentrate on the characters and the action and the, and the kind of jokes as much as anything, um, and just for it to be fun. And, of course, that lasted about a week. And then it became not fun. And now it's grueling hard work um, up to a point. Because, you know, fun, the fun only lasts as long as it's not important. And as soon as you, you start getting invested in the project, then it's like, okay, then you start taking it seriously. So um, who knows when that will be done? I've got a few other, other pots on the boil. So the plan was also to kind of write something that, you know, I could take my time over and, and publish when it's done, you know, rather than you leave people waiting for the next installment of this or that. I'd rather kind of write the whole thing and then, you know, publish it when the time's right. So Is uh, that a... A similar approach is this going to be like a trilogy that you're going to try to write the entire thing and then well, this, divide this it up? What's more of a, of a linked, with a plan for it, is it's a kind of uh, single books that are linked in the way that, you know, a detective series might be. So okay. It's not a detective series, but it's, it's <laughs> a group, a group, if I was going to say a group of people. They're not really people, but it's a group. Sure. They have a different mission each time. You know, and then you can kind of each book is stands on its own and can be kind of read on its own, but also links together. Uh, gotcha. In the way that a detective series might, and so the advantage of that is that you know, something like the Age of Madness, you've really got to sit down and apply yourself to. For I mean, it took five years. It was a five-year plan, really, a five-year project, and pretty committed during that five years because there's a lot to keep in your mind and kind of a lot that runs through all three books. Um, and I needed something where I could, you know, drop in and out a little bit more. Um, so the idea with this is that, you know, I could write a book this year and then maybe in a couple of years I could write another if, if there's an appetite for it. Whereas the first lot of stuff needs a bit more concerted time and energy to sort of develop and execute. Yeah, and I realize it is also a bit silly to be asking you too much about a book uh, if you're in the drafting stage, given how uh, heavily you like to hit the revision stage. And that's especially true with this because... Um, I mean, with The Age of Mandus, in a way, I made this decision to sort of tear through a first draft, partly because over time I'd sort of learned that there's an economy to bashing out a rough draft and then revising it once you know what you've got in total, rather than going over and over and over every paragraph as I originally did. But that worked quite well in the end, although you feel a bit less confident as you go through because, you know, you, you're leaving a sort of mess behind you. Uh, and you haven't got this feeling of, okay, I've got that character. I know what I'm doing with that. You just smash it out and then you worry about it later. But I felt like that was the right approach with this book to just kind of crash through it. And then I can just take on the revision a couple of weeks here, a couple of weeks there, and just gradually work it up and, and boil it down to what I want. So that was kind of, that's the idea with this new one. And it does, it's good, but it's also, I might actually have to stop and revise what I've got so that I feel like what I've got is worth something. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it sounds like that fits with the structure you're planning of kind of like linked sort of standalones as well, where you don't have to have that overarching everything nailed down. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And 
it's nice sometimes to feel for, for me the characters are key and the voice of the characters is kind of the essential thing i think if you've got an interesting character and a good way of writing from their perspective watching paint dry is fine you know it's it's better if it's a gripping plot and etc but gripping plot with boring characters is still boring for my money whereas sure. paint dry with fascinating characters is still fascinating you know that is the crux for me and i so, mean i i think what hooked me on the first law originally was glockta going up and down stairs so <laughs> that shows how much a uh, voice can really matter yeah yeah exactly and and a, a sort of close understanding of what the character's like and you develop that through a lot of living in their head and going over and over things i think really so perhaps i need to do a bit of that just sit down and take some time with it rather than sort of try to rush headlong forward and focus on how many words i've got down each day sometimes you're better off cutting words than adding them you know yeah fair enough so we we think in 2023 2025 any idea it's like uh i've i've sat and said you know I'm, it's an organic process and i can't commit to a date and then you've asked me what date is it you're committing to <laughs> yep uh, so january or february <laughs> tell well, me that I, much you know, I, I wouldn't be i'd love to finish a draft by the end of this year but it does depend a bit on other things so it's hard to know and and as i say the sort of idea with this book was to was to you know do something that is kind of open-ended so that i don't have to worry too much i mean i feel like obviously the age of madness i tried to there was a big gap beforehand because i was getting it you know all, all drafted out but i'd rather do that have the big gap before and then publish three in a row relatively close together and then leave a gap after you know i don't think people are annoyed with you if you've not you know set up the the start without paying off so i'd rather kind of just say i'm not sure when until i'm sure when <laughs> and then once i'm sure try and stick to that yeah, there we go. Um, well, uh, one way I kind of like to end these interviews is just asking, what's one thing you're excited about right now? One thing I'm excited about? Well, I mean, one could almost say I, I was excited about touring for this next book, you know, because I've not done any in-person events since the first book in The Age of Madness. Obviously, there was nothing last year. And I've been hoping that in September we'd be kind of, maybe not totally back to normal, but able to go and do in-person events. And I've got one booked in Bath. Obviously, that's looking a little dicier now, so I'm very much hoping that that comes off. But I saw uh, a, um, what would you call it, trailer, gameplay footage from Elden Ring the other day. You know, the Dark Souls. It's yeah. not Dark Souls. Don't say Dark Souls. It's just made <laughs> by the Dark Souls guy and looks exactly sure. like Dark Souls. But it's, uh, that was pretty amazing. That looked very good. So that's the first video game I've been kind of uh, looking forward to for a very long time. But then I can't, you can't actually buy any of the hardware to play it on at the moment, it seems. Funny how that works. Uh, I, I know I went through that issue with uh, getting a Nintendo Switch last year, and now it's uh, the PS5 and some other consoles no one can get their hands on. No, and it's, it must be getting towards a year now that they've been out, and you can't actually, and they're kind of not out, which is a bit bizarre. Yeah, and I really can't be bothered pressing refresh on a browser 600 times on the finding out the day they're dropping at a given retailer then pressing i'm not i'm not doing that yep that's tough i'm nearly 50 i'm not doing that <laughs> uh yeah well uh that's all i have for you today joe uh thank you so much for coming on the podcast
It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. And uh, long may your interviewing of writers and your reaching out to readers continue. Yes, that's the dream. You can find Joe Abercrombie on Facebook as Joe Abercrombie Author and on Twitter as Lord Grimdark or at his website, joeabercrombie.com. Say one thing for the Age of Madness series, say it's pretty damn good. As always, you can find us over at thefantasyin.com or click the invite in the show notes to join our Discord server. If you enjoyed this interview, consider supporting us on Patreon. We've got exclusive episodes, video interviews, and more. Or take a minute of your time to leave us a review online. It means the world. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you can catch all of our future episodes. That's all for this week. Until next time.